Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauk, and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. The roots of alchemy can be traced back to a single document known throughout history as the Emerald Tablet, said to have been brought by mysterious visitors to Egypt over 12,000 years ago, a time the ancient texts referred to as Zeptepi, when godlike beings roamed the earth. This epic before 10,000 B.C. is a specific time when flesh and blood gods roamed the earth. They, they needed food and shelter, and they moved about in the heavens and in boats, according to the ancient papyri. These are the Nephilim mentioned in Genesis, literally those who came down, or the Elohim who made Adam after our image. The Sumerians called them the Anunnaki, those who came from heaven to earth. Ancient texts from around the world refer to this remote epoch that took place sometime before the Great Flood, and they all describe the same godlike beings who came to earth and established their kingdom here. The ancient Hindu texts, the ancient Babylonian texts, in Egypt, the Book of the Dead, uh, the Eber's Papyrus, the 68-foot-long scroll on alchemy that is the world's oldest book, the Book of What is in the Dot, dozens of other rebirth and funerary texts from around the world. And these all agree that this happened at the same time. So there's mounting evidence that mysterious visitors came to our planet and brought with them a powerful spiritual technology, which they passed on to future generations in a time capsule of wisdom that became known as the Emerald Tablet. This document dates from a time of perfection, a Garden of Eden myth in nearly every culture on the planet. It was a time when one true philosophy existed for the whole world, and all that is left to us today are just fragments of that archaic tradition. Ancient monuments from around the world were built to honor this tradition. Current Giza monuments were built to preserve and honor these sacred ruins that existed at one point on the plateau. Imenhotep, the builder of the first pyramid, received the design from a messenger that descended from heaven to the north of Memphis. Many pits were found on the uh, Giza Plateau that show that pre-existing structures were there. There are many foundations from huge structures that existed on the plateau at one time before the pyramids were built. Eric von Däniken has estimated some of the foundations on the plateau to be over 12,000 years old. Graham Hancock and Robert Breval has dated the Sphinx back to 10,500 B.C. based on weathering uh, and water erosion and stellar alignment. In fact, if you've been to the Giza Plateau and you've seen the Sphinx, you know that the body is much more ancient than the head. In fact, the head does not fit. It is much too small for the body of the Sphinx and has obviously been recarved from a pre-existing head or replaced. These are obvious things that our Egyptologists around the world are still sticking their heads in the sand. It's time for us to acknowledge that tradition. But what is this emerald tablet that contains a summary of all this ancient wisdom that is the source of all these sacred traditions on the planet? The author of the emerald tablet acted as a liaison between the people and what the early Egyptians called the group of nine, which was the term they gave to these visitors. His name was Toth, the god of thought and inventor of writing, mathematics, and music. It is written that Toth, knowing a great flood was about to inundate the planet, summarized the visitors' teachings in two great pillars to serve as time capsules of wisdom. According to Gurdjieff, uh, some of these early visitors reportedly migrated to the headwaters of the Nile in Ethiopia to establish the current society of Akoldans in the Shemsu Hor, or the followers of Horus or Christ, the first Christian church before the birth of Christ. So the scribe, or the liaison for this group of nine, sometimes referred to as the custodial gods, was Toth. 
and he's been associated with Enoch in the Old Testament, Idris Sarid in the Islamic tradition, and is called Hermes in the Greek tradition. He became Mercury in the Roman tradition. So whatever powerful force this person represented has come down to us to this day. He is the inventor of mathematics, music, and writing. He carries the caduceus, the symbol of the life force and the intertwined serpents of the DNA code. He is said to have written down the sum of all knowledge, and this has been depicted in, in various symbolic ways down through the ages. For instance, the ancient Egyptian texts say that he wrote 36,525 books, which is another way of saying that he wrote the sum of all knowledge, because 365.25, of course, is the exact number of days in a year. So Toth wrote the Emerald Tablet. He knew of the coming great flood, and he sealed it all in two pillars that became known as the two pillars of Hermes. These two pillars, containing various texts and the original Emerald Tablet, survived for some time after the flood and were described by several ancient Egyptian scribes as well as ancient historians like Herodotus as recently as 450 B.C. One of Toth's books was known as the Book of Breathings and supposedly taught men how to become gods. Another of his books consisted entirely of symbols and was said to stimulate higher states of consciousness. And according to tradition, the Hermetic tradition, a lot of these images became incorporated into the Tarot. Pharaoh Amenhotep is said to have commissioned a search throughout Egypt for the ancient text in order to gain the knowledge to build the pyramids. But it was Amenhotep IV, who ruled around 1400 B.C., who really took the Emerald Tablet principles and put them to work in the world. The word Amenhotep translates as, Amen is satisfied. Amen was the most ancient Egyptian god, basically a god of ego, a god to whom the pharaoh sacrificed in order to gain wealth or to succeed in war. Amenhotep IV, however, changed his name to Akhenaten, meaning he who serves the Aten. The Aten, as described in the Emerald Tablet, is the one mind, and Akhenaten believed that the one mind manifested or corresponded in physical existence to the sun, to the solar disk in the sky, the principle of light and enlightenment. And he believed that this was the only God, the only force, the only one mind in the universe. The Aten, or the disk, as it is referred to in the Egyptian text, is not a personified deity like Amen, or even our Christian gods and later gods, but an abstract force or presence. It's like combined creative energy with created matter, and you worship both in this religion. That there is only one God in the universe made up of both matter and energy, darkness and light. And this principle of living in truth and acknowledgement to this relationship between you and the universe, and the one mind and the one thing of the universe, became the principle of Egyptian society during Akhenaten's reign. In the art of Akhenaten, we see many different changes in the style from the previous laid-back, staid Egyptian art. There are more realistic scenes. It's not stiff and lifeless as we associate with the Egyptians, but he showed actual scenes of people in everyday life, of his daughters on his knees, and everyday life in Egypt of him kissing his beautiful wife, Nefertiti. Akhenaten, however, unfortunately, was not the most handsome man in the universe. In fact, he's been described as the extraterrestrial pharaoh because of his odd appearance. He had spindly legs and spindly arms and 
as if he's spent a lot of time in, in a gravity-free environment. He had a huge, truding belly with wide, wide hips and a very elongated head, almost a cone-shaped head. So he was a very odd-looking guy, but a very fearless fellow, too, because he applied these principles without regard to the ancient traditions. He moved the uh, capital of Egypt from Thebes to Armana, where he set up a, a city, a very enlightened city of 60,000 residents, a city in which the feminine consciousness as well as the masculine consciousness ruled. In other words, females and female intu intuition and female ways of knowing were given equal footing with the masculine aggressive argumentative ways of knowing. In fact, women themselves were granted much more privilege in, in Akhenaten city. Women and men lived together in dormitories. They shared uh, unisex bathrooms. They uh, argued together. It was a very enlightened, very utopian society that unfortunately only lasted 17 years. The jealous priest of a man finally could not take any more of the changes of their philosophy and overthrew Akhenaten and Nefertiti and installed his puppet son, uh, Tutankhamun, whose original name was Tutankhaten, he who serves the Aten. They changed his name to Tutankhamen who serves the Amen, the old God, the God that they worshipped. This whole period in our history is extremely important because it was the first instance of a monotheistic religion being established on the planet. Sigmund Freud acknowledges in his book Moses and Monotheism, Harvard Egyptologist uh, Jan Esman wrote Moses the Egyptian and uh, Moses Pharaoh of Egypt by Osmet Osman all have the same theme that Moses was raised in Akhenaten's court and initiated into the Egyptian mysteries of the Emerald Tablet. In other words, Moses was in training as a, a type of magician in the uh, in the Pharaonic court, and he took this tradition into the Jewish religion, this monotheistic religion, as they were forced to leave Egypt during this time of turmoil when the priests of Amen were asserting their authority. According to legend, the tablet was given to Miriam, sister of Moses, and she placed it in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. Akhenaten's son, Tutankhamen, uh, ruled Egypt from about nine years old to when he was 14 years old, and uh, there was evidence uncovered recently by archaeologist Bob Breer that Tutankhamen was actually murdered by the priest of Amen as he came to age and started wanting to assert his own philosophy. So the events that happened in Egypt about 1400 B.C. still reverberate to us today. The patriarchal religions and ideas of the priest of Amen are still in our world, are still practiced by many, many churches and fundamentalist groups. We still, in our Western society, pursue the masculine consciousness. We're a very patriarchal society. We still worship the patriarchal god of ego. In fact, we still end our prayers with his name. Amen. After the fall of dynastic Egypt, when Alexander the Great invaded the land in 332 B.C. and became Pharaoh, he was granted knowledge of all the ancient Hermetic texts, and, according to legend, they were kept at the Amen Temple in Siwa, Egypt, an oasis nearly all the way to uh, Libya, across the Egyptian desert. Within a few days after entering Egypt, Alexander took his army all the way across the desert in a treacherous trip across the desert to Siwa to recover the ancient Hermetic manuscripts and the Emerald Tablet and bring them back. He assembled the Tothian artifacts in Hermopolis, a city named after the Greek name for Toth, Hermes. He then commissioned the building of Alexandria as a permanent home for the documents where they could be translated into Greek and shared with the world. From the letters of people who actually saw it, we know that the tablet was put on public display in Egypt in 330 B.C. 
From the descriptions of witnesses, it appears that the Emerald Tablet was a clear green crystalline object. Some even described it as glowing. Perhaps that's the way it just caught the light. It was in base relief lettering, meaning that the letters of the tablet were raised and you could feel them with your fingers. The size was approximately 18 inches high by 12 inches wide. The lettering was in the ancient and Phoenician and Sumerian language. We do know that uh, after Alexandria was built, uh, there were three revised translations issued of the Emerald Tablet uh, between 290 B.C. and 50 B.C. As to what became the actual tablet, it is thought that uh, Alexander took the original tablet with him when he left Egypt to invade Babylonia on his way to India, and that he hid the tablet and a few of the ancient texts in an underground cavern to take back with him to reclaim on his way back to Greece after this campaign. Unfortunately, Alexander died of fever on his return from India in 323 B.C. His tomb has never been found, and no evidence of where he hid the emerald tablet has ever been recorded. So little is known of the tablet or where it was hid until around 32 A.D., when a 16-year-old boy found it in an underground cavern in Cappadocia, part of what is now Turkey. His name was Balinus, and he was exceptional from the moment he was born. He was a very advanced child who spoke many different languages. In fact, his father was so disturbed by his son's gift that he thought he suffered from some malady and actually took him to priests and healers. And once he took his son to um, the high priest in the land and examined him for many days, and the group of priests declared their findings in front of the father and son and many citizens of Tiana, which was the city in which they lived. The priest said that the boy was a god and he was beyond their ability to judge him. Well, this is not exactly what the father wanted to hear. And there developed a great gulf between the boy and his father. In fact, in later writings, Bolinus said that he felt like he was an orphan. He even took to roaming the streets of Tiana, seeking out a father figure, seeking out merchants and travelers or teachers or anyone who knew more than his teachers in the little school to which he attended. One day the boy came upon a marble statue set on a gilded column near the edge of town. The monument itself was very old, and though the common language was then Aramaic, the writing on the statue was in the ancient Syrian alphabet. As the boy gazed up at the imposing figure on the pedestal, something in the ancient man's eyes caught his interest. It was as if the man knew everything. On a plaque, halfway at the column, were the words, Behold, I am Hermes Trismegistus, who is threefold in wisdom. I once placed these marvelous signs openly before all eyes, but now I have veiled them by my wisdom, so that none should attain them unless he become a sage like myself. Further up, a breastplate declared, Let him who would learn and know the secrets of creation and nature inquire at my feet. The boy fell to his knees immediately and looked up into the man's proud face. Here stood the tutor he had longed for, someone beyond the folly and exaggeration of the world, someone who knew the higher truth the boy sensed intuitively. His large, dark eyes swelled up with tears, and he whispered, Teach me, Hermes. So this wise old man carved in stone became the father figure the boy so desperately needed, and he actually spent many evenings conversing with the gold marble as if it were a real person. This is from Belinus's own writings, and this is how he described it. He went to that statue as often as he could and communed in this silent meditation, in this active imagination. And he was truly connected to the above. He found what he was searching for, and he left Tiana 
At the age of 14, he quit his schools, quit his parents, and went to seek out teachers of the Hermetic wisdom. He went to schools all over Greece, seeking teachers of Hermes and Tothian knowledge. He found what he was looking for in the Pythagorean teachings, and he returned after two years to Tiana, having learned all he could from his teachers again back to the statue to seek out further instruction. Again, he entered his meditative state at the statue, at the base of the statue, and he fell asleep at the statue. And it was the sun that awoke him in the morning, and it beamed down on the breastplate, the brass breastplate of the statue, and he saw the words again, Inquire at my feet. And suddenly he grasped the meaning of these cryptic words, and he started digging at the base of the statue. And he dug, and he dug, and he dug, until he uncovered an entrance to a vast underground cavern, a cave full of blowing winds and utter darkness. And he went into the cave just a few feet, and his slight frame was torn about and tossed about so badly that he had to retreat. He couldn't see anything in there. All he could hear were the howling winds. Frustrated, the boy was dejected that he had no way of going into the cave, and he was certain there was something in there for him. That night again he fell asleep at the base of the statue, again according to his own words. His head propped against the cool stone, the boy dreamt of an old man standing next to the opening of the cave. The man looked familiar, but it was not Hermes. Obelinus, the man called out, rise and enter into this chamber to gain knowledge of the secrets of creation so as to, to obtain a true representation of nature. I can see nothing in that darkness, replied Belinus in his dream, and the winds that blow there put out every flame. Belinus, put your light into a glass vessel, suggested the man. The boy had never seen such a lantern, but he knew at once the idea would work. Who are you that allows me to profit from your favor, asked the savvy boy. And the man said, I am your own being, perfect and subtle. Awoke full of joy, he set a torch inside a glass, just as the man had said, and entered the chamber shortly after sunrise the next day. There he found, deep in the underground cavern, the body of Hermes, or a statue of Hermes, been described in the text in different ways, but he found in the lap of this body or statue the emerald tablet, and at the feet were five texts. He retrieved these treasures and instantly set about trying to understand them and trying to absorb them and trying to meditate with them. In fact, as a 16-year-old boy, he took a vow of silence that he would not speak or utter any of this wisdom until he fully understood it, until he fully absorbed it. He would only communicate with people through the true ways of speaking by gestures of his eyes, his hands. And for five years, this lad went around not speaking to anyone, yet communicating and getting around and living and subsiding without uttering a word until he had fully understood and absorbed these teachings. When he did speak, a lot of people wished he'd stop speaking, because Belinus set out to travel about the whole world, spreading his news of the Hermetic teachings. He went to the Essenes and Therapeutes and Gnostics and many, many other that went all the way to India and, and spoke with the Brahmins and shared his knowledge there. His idea was to revive the ancient religions. His idea was that any religion was a valid religion, as long as it was a living religion. Yet any religion that was saturated with dogma and was no longer living and alive to its participants was a dead religion and must be revived. He sought to do that in many, many different ways, in discussions with the priest and, uh, and also by placing talismans at the altars of the various shrines and churches he entered. 
He'd place stones or pieces of metal charged with his own psychic energy underneath the altar to help revive and to help bring this life force back into the churches that he felt was missing. In fact, there developed a great trade in talismans of Apollonius as became known. Apollo was the sun god, and Polinus became known as Apollonius of Tiana. And his talismans were sold and bartered throughout the world, and many, many, many of them were not, of course, his own talismans of the thousands and thousands that we still have to this day. What percentage are genuine, we do not know. So, Belinus, as Apollonius of Tiana, became a force in the world, spreading the teachings of the Emerald Tablet. As he got older, he retired to Alexandria and took the Emerald Tablet there, it is thought, wrote about the tablet in many, many texts, interpreting the tablet, telling about his travels. Unfortunately, 300 years after Belinus died, all his works were destroyed. In 400 AD, the church issued an edict saying that Apollonius was a rival of Christ and that all his works should be destroyed. In fact, all pagan texts should be destroyed throughout the world. Libraries throughout the world were utterly burned to the ground by Christian zealots. The library at Alexandria, which at one time had contained as many as 700,000 texts, was reduced to just 70,000 texts after successive burnings by the Christians and then, to a small extent, the Arabs when they invaded Egypt. So this book burning that took place at 400 AD destroyed not only Apollonius's work, but also the work of many, many others who had interpreted the Emerald Tablet and passed on the teachings of the Emerald Tablet and the true tradition. That tradition, of course, is lost to us today, and we have only these, these threads to work with. But fortunately, the text of the Emerald Tablet has survived to us because of Belinus. His writings in Alexandria were translated into the Arabian tongue, and these translations survived the book burnings and eventually made their way to Europe with the Moorish invasion of Spain. They were then translated into what we have traced as at least three Latin translations of the original Arabian text, and these spread like wildfire throughout Europe, igniting the gnosis of alchemy. This is what we think the Emerald Tablet said. In truth, without deceit, certain and most veritable, that which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. And just as all things have come from this one thing, through the meditation of one mind, so do all created things originate from this one thing through transformation. Its father is the sun, its mother the moon, the wind carries it in its belly, its nurse is the earth. It is the origin of all, the consecration of the universe. Its inherent strength is perfected if it is turned into earth. Separate the earth from fire, the subtle from the gross, gently and with great ingenuity. It rises from earth to heaven and descends again to earth, thereby combining within itself the powers of both the above and the below. Thus will you obtain the glory of the whole universe. All obscurity will be clear to you. This is the greatest force of all powers because it overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. In this way was the universe created. From this comes many wondrous applications because this is the pattern. Therefore am I called thrice greatest Hermes, having all three parts of the wisdom of the whole universe. What is the Emerald Tablet telling us? It speaks in extremely generic terms about the relationship between mind and matter and divides reality into two corresponding areas called the above and the below. 
The above is the subtle realm of light, imagination, and pure thought, where all things originate from just one mind. The below is the gross realm of darkness, matter, and sensation, where all things originate from just one thing. Creation results when the one mind projects a thought form, or archetypal ideal, or vibration of the word, into the chaos of the one thing. The below is the realm of the maraud things, the many, many, many things that originate from duality. It is the manifested realm, the body-centered realm. It exists on the gross or physical level, driven by bodily energy. It is past-oriented, dealing with artifacts of memory, trauma, abuse memories on the personal level. And the elements below are tied to the material realm. Earth for the alchemists on this level was like a tabernacle of memory. Water was often called the tears of the earth, and air the breath of God, and fire the hearth of spirit. All these elements manifest on the earth. The above is the unmanifested realm, the mind-centered realm of imagination. It exists on subtle or pranic or key energies. It is future-oriented and transpersonal. The elements above are sulfur, which is our soul determination and will, our feelings, the chaotic one thing, and mercury, our spirit, thought, Hothian ways of knowing, discovery, and, and nerves even, and ganglia in the brain, in the, in the physical realm. And the third element above is salt, which is something crystallized, made pure and no longer changing, like an encapsulated consciousness, according to the Rosicrucian alchemist, the mobile center of consciousness almost, the astral body of uh, the alchemist Paracelsus, the resurrected tabernacle of memory that, that is this out-of-body experience. We, we uh, experience a near-death experience as another paranormal and mystical events. That's the above, perhaps best summed up as a realm of imagination, where imagination is real. And here we are between manifesting, conjuncted, in the body-mind state, existing on both these gross and subtle energies, on both the above and the below, crucified between them. We are present-oriented in the present moment, and we, as the element between, we are the fifth element of the alchemist, the quintessence. We are the salt of the earth in this grand scheme. The Egyptians had specific hieroglyphs for these basic forces of nature. That should really not surprise us, since Toth, the author of the tablet, was the inventor of hieroglyphics, the sacred language, as well as mathematics and music. Paradoxically, this god-man was associated with birds as well as baboons and apes, and not a few writers have suggested that he was a stellar visitor responsible for the unique evolution of our own species. In his sacred writing, these unitary forces are represented by the only circular hieroglyphs in the Egyptian language. Ra, which is a circle with a dot at its center, represents the one mind. This is the sun, and the Egyptians saw all of existence as an operation of the sun, the blinding light of the one mind being manifested in reality. This is the Aten of Akhenaten, and also the circle with a dot at the center became the symbol of gold to the alchemist the true disk, the golden disk, manifested above and below. The one thing was also symbolized by a circle, a three-banded circle with wide, dark bands running through it uh, that became more shaded the denser it became until eventually it became a solid black disk. 
also known as the black sun in, in some traditions. It was called in the hieroglyphics, K, K-H-E, whose meaning has never been fully understood uh, by Egyptologists. Ket was the netter or god of archetypal force of all manifested things, K-H-E-T, and most translate K, K-H-E, as matter, worldly goods, structures, or cities. It is also associated with physical offerings to the god as well as shakers and sieves for separating out material worth saving. Others see a changing uh, living component in its meaning and translate it either as placenta or the black fertile dirt of the Nile Delta. Coincidentally, it is believed that the origin of the word alchemy is from the Arabic phrase al-k-me, taken as meaning from the black dirt that stands for Egypt. Actually, the word alchemy in this sense means from the one thing, which is the first matter of alchemy and the subject of the entire emerald tablet. So the hieroglyphics Ra and K are the only circle hieroglyphs because they are part of one. In the holographic sense, we are all the same mind and everything, whether mind or matter, is really only one. That is the basic lesson of the Emerald Tablet. Unfortunately, dualistic thinkers from all three Abrahamic religions interpreted this as a struggle between heaven and hell between a beneficent god of light sitting on a throne and an evil lord of darkness or devil living in the underworld. The tablet, however, was not written by moralists seeking to control people's behavior, but by seekers of truth, and its primary message was that all is one. Since unity is love, you could also say that all is love. In other words, the universe is really a unified whole in which the powers of light and darkness work together to bring life and spirit into matter. The early church fathers actually embraced the tablet to support the idea of one God and fight paganism in the Middle Ages. However, the tablet soon proved too extreme in its monotheism. The church needed the devil to control people's minds. Moreover, the tablet suggested anyone could reach the divine mind in the privacy of their own homes. And that went certainly against the view that divine power was distributed down through the office of the church to the people. The tablet presents a view of an evolving universe that is becoming more and more alive and aware, in which the one mind and the one thing are becoming one. The symbol of this paradoxical process of creation out of chaos and of the emerald tablet itself, as we note it, is the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. The Ouroboros is the engine that drives reality. It is this tension between opposites depicted in the, the yin-yang symbol of dark and the light with the seed of each and yielding and penetrating one another continuously. The Ouroboros was often shown with a dark belly or, or a light top or red and green in a dualism of colors or perhaps it had wings above and feet below always showing that it incorporated these two opposite trends in the universe. The one statement from the Emerald Tablet that most of us are familiar with is, as above, so below. And it is through this doctrine of correspondences that alchemy exists. The idea is that we are a microcosm of the whole universe. Within us are mirrored the same forces of creation and change. By consciously working with the chaotic power of the one thing that is our very souls, we can actually change our own personal reality. And as the Emerald Tablet even gives us a step-by-step -step formula for doing that, it became the source document of the alchemist. 
The medieval alchemists had a copy of the Emerald Tablet hanging on their laboratory walls, and they were constantly referring to the secret formula of transformation it contained. This uh, seven-stepped emerald formula is the most powerful formula in alchemy, a way to work in harmony with the primordial pattern of the whole universe. And basically, this formula shows us how to work with the building blocks of reality by identifying four deeply embedded or archetypal principles called the elements. By learning to work with the elements, inside and out, the alchemists became masters of transformation. Uh, this emerald formula works with seven operations, seven basic operations in alchemy, which are laboratory operations as well as spiritual operations as well as psychological operations. In other words, the alchemists worked on three levels of reality at all times. They worked on the physical level, they worked on the mental level, and they worked on the spiritual level. And no change in alchemy was permanent or complete unless it was accomplished on all of these three levels. That is the glaring difference between alchemy and modern chemistry. Modern chemistry concerns itself with just the physical level. The alchemists worked often simultaneously on all three levels. The Emerald Formula consists of these seven consecutive steps that are performed on the matter at hand, whether that matter be something in the laboratory, something in your own psychology, or your own soul that you're working on. While it's not the goal of this particular tape on the Hermetic tradition to work with these steps or, or to, uh, to meditate and do the operations with them, uh, that's covered in, in the manuals and other tapes, I will give a cursory explanation of each step. The first step works with the element fire, and it's called calcination. And calcination is the heating of a substance in a crucible or over an open flame until it is reduced to ashes. That is what the word calx means, and our word calcium and calcify comes from that root word. Psychologically, this is the destruction of ego and our attachment to material possessions. This is usually a natural humming process as we are gradually assaulted and overcome by the trials and tribulations of life though it can be a deliberate surrender of our inherent hubris gained through a variety of spiritual disciplines that ignite the fire of introspection and self-evaluation. But the first step is always the uncomfortable step of destroying that which existed before, whether it is our own ego or, or some matter or material that we've accumulated in the laboratory. This is true in all levels that we look at, when I work with organizations, the starting point is to burn down or, or to attack the existing bureaucracy because the bureaucracy in an organization, this hierarchy of habit, is the ego of the organization that takes over and runs it. Dissolution is, is working with water, the next step in alchemy. It's dissolving the ashes of, from calcination in water. It is a further breaking down of the artificial structures of the psyche psychologically, by total immersion in the unconscious or irrational or feminine rejected part of our minds. It is, for the most part, an unconscious process in which our conscious minds just let go of control and allow the surfacing of buried material. It is the opening of the floodgates and generating new energy from the waters held back. It often involves muscle therapies and things that are bodily-orientated therapies and alchemical massage. Separation is the next step in alchemy, the third step, and works with air to filter and isolate the components from dissolution and then discarding any ungenuine or unworthy material. This is the rediscovery of our essence and the reclaiming of dream and visionary gold previously rejected by the masculine rational part of our minds. 
It is, for the most part, a conscious process in which we review formerly hidden material and decide what to discard and what to integrate into our refined personality. Much of this shadowy material are things we are ashamed of or were taught to hide away by our parents' churches or schools. Separation, then, is letting go of self-inflicted restraints to our true nature so we can shine through. Conjunction is the four-step and kind of the turning point in alchemy in this, in this process. It's associated with earth and manifestation. It is the recombination of the same elements uh, from separation into a new substance, the empowerment of our true selves, if you will, the union of both the masculine and feminine sides of our personalities into a new belief system or an intuitive state of consciousness that incorporates both the intellectual side and our feeling side. The alchemists referred to it as the lesser stone. The Egyptian alchemists called it the intelligence of the heart. And after it is achieved, the adept is able to clearly discern what needs to be done to achieve lasting enlightenment, which is a union with the over-self or the higher mind. And often at this stage, and psychologically, uh, synchronicities begin to occur that confirm the alchemist is on the right track or even guide him. With this turning point in the operations of alchemy, we enter the last three stages, the stages that take place in the realm above, in the realm of imagination, in our minds, in heaven, if you will. Fermentation is the fifth operation. It is the introduction of new life into the product of the conjunction to strengthen it and ensure its survival. This stage begins with the putrefaction of the hermaphroditic child from the conjunction, resulting in its death and resurrection to a new level of being. The fermentation process starts with the inspiration of spiritual power from above that reanimates, energizes, and enlightens the alchemist. It's just like the fermentation, natural fermentation process of wine, for instance, or any other product that starts with this putrefaction, this rotting away and decaying of the previous material. And out of this material comes fermentation when spirit or alcohol is produced and the wine results from the crushed grapes. So out of the blackness of this putrefaction comes the yellow ferment, which appears like a golden wax flowing out of the fall matter in actual laboratory experiments. Its arrival is announced by a brilliant display of colors and meaningful visions in, in the alchemist himself called the peacock's tail stage. Fermentation can be achieved through various activities that include intense prayer, desire for mystical union, breakdown of the personality, transpersonal therapy, psychedelic drugs even, and deep meditation. Fermentation is living inspiration from something totally beyond us. It is a very religious and mysterious experience. Distillation is the sixth step in transformation. It is learning to work with these transpersonal powers that were released during the fermentation stage, learning to ground ourselves, because if we don't, we'll simply be blown away by them. This new life force can take over our whole being. So distillation in the laboratory is the boiling and condensation of the fermented solution to increase its purity. This agitation and sublimation of psychic forces in the individual is necessary to ensure that no impurities from the inflated ego or deeply submerged id are incorporated into the next and final stage. Distillation consists of a variety of introspective techniques that raise the content of the psyche to the highest level possible, free from sentimentality and emotions, cut off even from one's personal identity. But it's a very powerful process and relates to the objective experience of understanding how to do something. In Western culture, it's our tradition of science and the scientific approach. 
Distillation, in effect, is the purification of the unborn self, all that we truly are and can be, and raising it to a level where we can actually work with it. Coagulation is the final step in the Emerald Formula. It is the precipitation of the purified ferment from distillation process in the laboratory. It is first sensed as a new confidence in the individual that is beyond all things, though many experience it as an actual second body of golden light, a permanent vehicle of consciousness that embodies the highest aspirations and evolution of mind. Coagulation incarnates and releases this ultimateria of the soul, which the alchemists also referred to as the greater or philosopher's stone. Using the magical stone, the alchemists believed they could create an elixir that would cure all diseases and heal all wounds on all levels, on the physical, on the mental, and on the spiritual. That is really all the time we have on this tape to deal with the Emerald Formula because it is such a multi-level process. But that gives you an idea of how these processes kind of go on the physical, mental, and spiritual levels. If we really want to understand the Emerald Tablet in a short time and try to pick up its principles internally as well as intellectually, we can use a process that was really perfected by Carl Jung, who had one of the largest collection of alchemy books in the world. It's called Active Imagination, and I describe such an encounter with Hermes himself in uh, my book, The Emerald Tablet, Alchemy for Personal Transformation. This method of active imagination is the same method used by those who composed the Corpus Hermeticum, and those impassioned treatises were also attempts to elaborate on the meaning of the Emerald Tablet. All we have to do to achieve this state of mind is to imagine what it would be like if we could corner the mercurial Hermes and get him to come back to the modern world to answer a few questions. So imagine in your own minds that we are about to enter a great inner chamber or cavern. We open the doors, and as our eyes adjust to the brightness, we notice that everything is pure white. The floors, walls, and ceiling are all uniformly white, and it is impossible to discern any corners or even to determine the shape of the room. The only identifiable object is a massive golden cube at the very center. The metallic monolith towers over us and must be at least twelve feet on each end. As we approach, electricity fills the air and tiny sparks start shooting out from the empty space above the cube. Before our eyes, the sparks coalesce into a hovering box of lightning, a cube of diamond-white light that hangs suspended well above the solid cube on the floor. Between the two, a pinkish vapor forms and then splits like a silken veil to reveal the tall figure of a man. The man is taller than any mortal and bathed in a shimmering greenish light. As he materializes before us, his body is transparent for a few seconds, and his heart and brain can be seen, pulsating and radiant. We watch as his heart transformed into an ibis bird and his brain into a gleaming emerald, but his flesh soon takes form, concealing those inner treasures. Finally, flowing robes of deep blue and yellow envelop him, and golden sandals appear on his feet. He is crowned with a purple cloth turban emblazoned with the solar disk, resting in the cradle of the crescent moon. In his left hand he holds a fluttering winged staff entwined with two hissing serpents. The man pushes the intimidating staff towards us, all the while gazing intently into our eyes. His stare is not harsh nor arrogant, but full of simple wisdom. He then speaks in a dignified yet benevolent voice. 
I am thrice greatest Hermes, son of the divine, the messenger uniting superiors and inferiors, and their union is in me as it is in the one mind. How do we strike up a conversation with this kind of being? Just how openly will this secretive, contradictory man-god answer our questions? We start with something that has mystified philosophers for centuries. You call yourself thrice great, but what is your real name? By Hermes you know me, because that is the one-third I have chosen to show you. But I am truly three times Hermes, an eternal spirit who exists on all three levels of creation. Now am I embodied between the above and the below, although I speak not to you, but through you, for together we are of one mind. Tell us how we can be of one mind if you have your thoughts and we have ours. If that were true, we wouldn't need to question you. We are all of one mind, though it has not yet dawned on you, and all questions and all answers are known to the one mind, thus known to you. Yet your sight is veiled, and you perceive only the shadows and not their source. I speak from the light, as one who has seen, and though residing in shadow and in light, we are still of one mind. We mean no insult, but why should we believe you? After all, you are known as a notorious trickster. To trick those who hide is no deceit. Some of those who are foolish or fearful may even enter into the light and see with their own eyes and verify these truths themselves and finally serve the alchemy of their being. Nor would it be possible to lie when speaking of these highest things, for they are the thoughts of only one mind. You keep mentioning this one mind. Do you mean God? The gods you worship are all part of the one mind, but because you must name your gods, you cannot know God. By naming God, you only create yet another God. Only by being in the ineffable presence of the divine can you know the one God. And for that reason, I do not call God by name, but refer only to where God can be found in the one mind. If God is in the one mind, which is above, then the devil must be in the one thing which is below. Aren't the above and the below simply what we conceive of as heaven and hell? Such labels are inventions that serve worldly ends, for the true above and below are living things beyond description. In my tablet have I revealed all that can be spoken of these unlimited regions. The above is the abode of one mind, and the below is the abode of one thing. You need know nothing more because nothing more is knowable. You cannot label the ineffable. Work instead with the tiny spark of consciousness of which you are possessed. That spark can be fanned into a blazing gnosis that burns away the falsity of your tragic self-deception. Thereafter, can you verify for yourself that of which I speak? You can behold the one mind. You can touch the one thing. You mean we can travel to the above and the below as you do? How can that be? We are mere mortals. Listen carefully. Thought is a bubble of being that erupts on the fabric of reality through the pattern I revealed in my tablet. Thus are you as mortal as your thoughts, and it is your notion of heaven and hell that keeps you earthbound because it weighs you down with fear and duplicity. The things whereof I speak are everywhere under your nose. You have only to reach out to touch them. But out of your arrogance have you denied the one mind, and out of your fear have you desecrated the one thing. What hope is there for us to change our thoughts and rid ourselves of arrogance 
that it is the nature of mankind to behave this way and has been for thousands of years. The only hope for mankind is the alchemy revealed in my living tablet. But be not mistaken, the alchemy of which I speak is working with your seemingly valueless thoughts and feelings to refine them, to operate on all levels with the same force with which they work in the divine mind. In truth, all you are and all I am is thoughts and feelings, yet all thoughts are from just one mind, and all feelings are in just one thing. Therefore your consciousness is both a part and a whole. Know that the one thing within you is your chaotic feelings, the rejected energy that can drive your transformation. Know that the union of thought and feeling is like a stone you can carry anywhere, for this intelligence of the heart is everywhere just one thing. If through alchemy we are able to overcome our ignorance and change our beliefs, then how do we actually travel in these wondrous realms? Once your thoughts are purified, the ascent and descent are as natural as breathing, since the above is subtle and the below is gross. The subtlest part of matter is soul, the subtlest part of soul is spirit, and the subtlest part of spirit is God. To travel in these realms, you need only change the density of your thoughts, and by weighing shall you be judged. First you must free yourself from the roots of denial which keep you earthbound, which is the lead of your existence, and invert them into the roots of heaven planted in the golden light above. Then to, to become subtler, rid yourself of fear, and follow your lightest thoughts as they rise. To become denser, seek sensation and expression, and follow your heaviest thoughts as they plummet. But do not linger in heaven, my son. On the earth is where your work takes place. For in the rarefied atmosphere of consciousness, thoughts are actions, and all thoughts are in just one mind, and all results are in just one thing. Yet we are afraid to leave the earth and to travel through the realms as you. How can we not be afraid? Fear is great, for it destroys all subtle things and makes lead of gold. You cannot ascend and still have fear, for fear is darkness and belongs to the heaviest part of unknowing. To rise above fear, you must rise above the part of you that is in the darkness, whatever it may be. Look in the deepest of your wounds, for there lies the gold of your being, and though it pains you, you have to excise this luminous metal from the crevices where it has accumulated. Then release this treasure to light of consciousness and follow it as it flies upward and merges with the greater sun to the place where total knowledge burns forever, where fear cannot follow. There all things will be clear to you in the eternal moment before you return, for you will behold the fountain of fountains and see the one mind becoming the one thing. So this light from one mind penetrating the darkness of one thing is the great pattern you speak of in your tablet? There is only one pattern in the operation of the sun. By fire will you be set free. By water will you reclaim your power. By air will you discover your inner worth. By earth will you realize its potential. In your dissolution will you see the pattern encompassing you and know what to do for this pattern originated with the birth of the universe and is sealed in time and space everywhere. Only then will you be allowed to contribute to the universe. Only then will the child of your imagination be allowed to grow. For the secret fire quickens only proper matter, which even then must be repeatedly enthroned and made pure enough to join with the subtlest of the subtle in a lasting coagulation. In this seven-step pattern have I revealed all, yet all is only one. 
How can there be these seven steps to the pattern, yet everything be one? There are seven steps on the ladder of becoming, and this is the pattern from which the formula for ascent is derived. But having reached the seventh step, the eighth step is no longer on the ladder, and you stand beyond its pattern. This is the eighth sphere, which is the cosmic stone where light and dark, mind and matter, are eternally one. Only from this point can be seen the greater pattern, which I shall now envision, though thus do I take leave of you, since thought is my chariot. But what I see shall I reveal, which is all the science of the whole universe, for from the eighth I see only one.